0: So, let's look to our great God. Father, we thank you that you are a God who redeems. I think of our Lord when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news, release to the captives, garment of praise instead of ashes. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present, not only in our hearts, but in our midst. We thank you, triune God, that from all eternity, you knew us. And we did not choose you. You chose us. You ordained us that we would go and bring forth fruit and that that fruit would remain. Father God, I pray for our two friends that are here today, Nathan and Craig. Lord, they're kind of out on the front lines of some of these cultural battles we face. And Lord, we pray that you would just anoint them in a special way for the work that you have called them to do. That Lord, when discouragement settles in their soul because of the overwhelmingness of the task that, Lord, you would remind them that from all eternity you have foreknown and you will work. And that your, your grace is sufficient. Thank you, Lord, that you have placed us in these days Sometimes the cowboy in me wishes I lived a hundred years ago. Lord, you put us here today. Help us, Lord, to make the most of every opportunity for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Wonderful. I am so glad to be here with you today. Uh, Your church is in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And I, I love it here. And, uh, but even more so, um, your pastor has been a tremendous blessing to me. So, the risk of sounding a little vulnerable, a couple of years ago, about three and a half years ago now, God had given me the opportunity to travel all over this state and to to run in a statewide campaign and get to know a lot of people. that God also blessed me by not allowing me to win that race, but to do well in it. <laughs> and whenever you've put everything you have into something, there's a time when it doesn't come to fruition, where you wonder, Lord, what is your next step for me? And your pastor, who was a wonderful friend, uh, gave me the opportunity to come meet you at this church and to preach here, and that was one of the most wonderful restorative things that I had hap- had happened to me in my life. God used that to great effect, and so this place has become a special place for me, and I'm so thankful for Emmanuel Bible Church. Not only that, uh, over the years as I have had the privilege of getting to know your pastor. I've come to recognize that I have uh, a brother in more ways than one, in that what he teaches of God's Word and the carefulness with which he holds it is something that resonates with me as well. And just recently I've had the opportunity to actually start taking up more uh, seminary classes uh, as well, and I've had the opportunity to share a lot of that with uh, your pastor, just... uh, and it has sparked deep, deep conversations. And I've been praying for you, for him, uh, through all of the health ups and downs that you guys have been working through the last couple of years. And I'm so grateful to see how God is using your ministry here in Thane, Wyoming. I do tell people, it's amazing. You go to a town, a 400, and in the middle of the summer, 200 of them are all in church together. It's the most amazing thing here. And... Uh, Now, the rest of the year, it gets rather cold. Uh, This morning, I don't know, I drove through, I think it was Grover. It started off, it was about two degrees in Afton. It was about negative nine in Grover, and then I came back up here, and it was about three degrees. So, I don't know, if you're from Grover, forgive me, but uh, there might be other places to live than there. I am... uh, I I want you, there's so much I want to cover with you this morning because my heart's so full. And when you were with family, it's like you want to catch up on on everything at the same time. And we don't have time to do all of that this morning, but so if you will, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. and, And really what my topic is this morning. Is I want to talk about this subject, left, right, or above. The role of the church in the public arena. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The scripture tells us. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing." whose minds the gods of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 7 as well. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I am thankful for this declaration of great faith that You gave to us through Your Apostle. And Father, Lord, I pray that these some 1900 and... 50 years later, Lord, that we would pick up what he was saying then and that we would understand how to apply it to our lives today. Lord, we need your wisdom to know how to navigate the world around us. Lord, while there are some that would pull one direction or another, I pray, Lord, that we would become the lighthouse that calls people up and out of the system of the world and leads them to a place of truth. we pray this in Your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank You. In 1943, 1943 competes with the year 1942 as the deadliest year in world history, and by almost every standard, it is the deadliest year in human history. The largest confrontation in World War II reached its highest point as the Russian High Command actually began the unit-by-unit destruction of General Paulus's 6th Army in Stalingrad. That siege, by the way, always is ranked in the top three deadliest battles in human history. And it was shortly followed up by the Battle of Kursk, which is the largest tank battle in human history and possibly... The largest air battle. By the way, usually we in America don't realize this, but nine out of every ten allied troop that died in World War II, actually that casualty was suffered by Russia. So these were vast battles. In In Warsaw, in the ghettos there, thousands of Jewish civilians actually began to build tunnels through the rubble as they began to fight deportation to the concentration camp known as Treblinka. By June of that year, 1.3 million Jews had already been deported and killed. This was also the height of the Japanese invasion in Asia. There were around 10 million that would eventually die there. The Americans and British were fully engaged in the South Pacific, but also in Operation Torch in North Africa and eventually on into Sicily. They had begun to take casualty after casualty. It was started off as a debacle for the American troops, but thankfully, General Patton was able to write that. That's a long story and a fun one. But anyway, moving on. In a little-known fact of that war, three million people died of starvation and famine in Bengal that year. In 1943, at the height of the deadliest year in human history, A visiting British professor from Magdalen College traveled across London and went and spoke, gave a series of lectures at the University of Durham. His name was Clive Stapleton Lewis. And knowing full well the nature of war, Lewis actually had lost his dearest friend in the trenches in World War I. As a matter of fact, he spent the rest of his life taking care of his friend's mother, Lewis actually, knowing what the war was looking like, he warned England of a very different, very real, and very potentially lethal threat that was standing in front of England. This series of lectures he presented was eventually developed into an extraordinary book, which I would highly recommend everyone here read. Is now entitled, The Abolition of Man. In the very first line of that book, Lewis writes this, I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. Let me say that again. It sounds so underwhelming. He says, I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to elementary textbooks. Now what does he mean? Well, he goes in his first chapter into dissecting carefully a school textbook from his day. He was a very kind man, kinder than me. He didn't want to call the authors out, and he didn't want to name the book. Me, on on the other hand, I'll tell you what it was. The book was entitled, The Control of Language. You might recognize this next phrase. A critical approach to, to reading and writing. What bothered Lewis so much was how the author... Expresses disgust at the idea of a story that Coleridge, where he described a waterfall as beautiful and sublime. He even used the word pretty. How dare he? And what he was saying was what what this this author, the reason why these teachers found so much disgust in Coleridge's words was because he cannot tell you that there is any actual truth. He cannot tell you that something is actually sublime or something is actually beautiful or pretty. He can only tell you how he feels about it. Lewis was, of course, terribly troubled by such a truth claim. These English teachers were saying that things cannot be objectively true. That all value statements are only, can only explain the emotional state of a speaker and are therefore unimportant. Lewis, writing nearly 80 years ago, was rather uncanny in his prediction that the subjection, the subjection of truth to feelings would lead to a future where a small cabal of supposed academic intellectuals could manipulate humanity along religious grounds by undermining the very basis of truth and eventually taking over the role of determining truth for themselves and telling the populace what is acceptable truth. Lewis points out the absurdity of relativism And even goes so far as to say that a deeply educated thinker would never allow such an idea. So the only way such an idea, like relativism, could sway in the minds of a populace is by planting the seeds of that absurdity in the minds of the young when they don't even realize that they are being indoctrinated. He states it this way in The Abolition of Man. It reads, The very power of the author's, depends on the fact that they are dealing with a boy. A boy who thinks he's simply doing his English prep work. And he has no notion that ethics and theology and politics are all at stake. It is not a theory they put into his mind. It's merely an assumption which 10 years from now, its origin forgotten, its presence unconscious, will condition him to take on one side in a controversy, controversy which he has never recognized as a controversy in the first place. What he's saying here is that the theological idea of relativism was being introduced even in his day to another generation who eventually would view truth as moldable and as malleable. His foresight was uncanny. Because he rightly understands that what is at stake. And he listed these three things. Ethics, theology, and politics. They are intertwined in a way where you and I, as the Christian church in America today, have to understand what he was saying all those years ago. They are intertwined. And he points out that the issues of education and public policy were invading the domain of the church, whether the church was ready for it or not, by destroying the very foundation of truth. Would you not agree with me that these statements are uncannily familiar? Would you not agree with me that much of what he just said has certainly come to pass. But would you also not agree with me that we have a God who is bigger than our cultural moment? Amen? The issues before our culture today in politics are issues of religion. Yet it is a religion unlike any religion that has come before it. It is overtly religious in its core doctrines of radical autonomy on the one hand and yet demands radical conformity to the demands of radical autonomy on the other. I didn't say it makes sense. I'm just saying it's there. It declares to the world that it is anti-religious and yet operates from a system of virtue signaling and virtue shaming. It has its seminaries set up on university campuses across the country. Where students learn from programs like gender studies and in philosophy departments that there is no objective truth. And the only kind of truth is the kind of truth that Oprah declares, you just live your truth, baby. Such deceitfulness is not new to our day. In the Apostle Paul's day, there were some in Corinth who distorted and outright nullified the truth of the gospel. And he addresses it in our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. Now, I want to be careful in my handling of God's Word. What he was dealing with was a group of people known as the Judaizers. And on the other hand, what would later become known as Gnosticism. These were more proto-Gnostics. But one of the things you can see in how they were distorting the truth is you can see that the same methodology used then is used today. And I believe that the verses that we're going to look in today can show us how to handle what happened then and how we can handle what happens now. And so, when we look at this astonishing... An outright rejection of truth. This, by the way, is the unique difference between what he was handling in 2 Corinthians and what we see today. Back then, at least they still believed that there was a truth. They weren't all settled on what truth was. Today, there are people that teach that there is no knowable truth. And they cut us off from every understanding of what it means to be rooted in truth. But the context of this book shows us that there had been some peddling lies about the gospel. If you'll turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see what I'm talking about where it says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, it's the last verse in that chapter. It says, For we are not, now notice this, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God but as of sincerity, not as from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, what he was saying is there were some who were peddling uh, the, the, the Word of God. They, th- this Word is very intriguing. As he's talking about these false teachers, he goes on to explain that throughout the rest of chapter 3, and he points out that these false teachers tried to bind up the Corinthians in the false philosophies of man. Some had come attacking not only His apostleship, but also the very basis of the Gospel. And that brings us to our passage this morning where Paul gives us these powerful verses that can instruct us today in how to stand up against the falsehoods that we see in the world. And finally in verse 6, he gives us this powerful mission statement. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to unpack this passage for us, we're going to just walk through these verses together, and then we're going to get to the application at the end. So look with me again in verse number one, 2 Corinthians chapter four, (coughs) verse one. Let's start there. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. What is the ministry that Paul is speaking of here? It's the the ministry of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of preaching the whole counsel of God. There is no veil, no concealment of the truth. It's exactly what John says in John chapter 1. And I love this, by the way. John writes, of course, and as you you know the beginning of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was nothing made that was made. Down in verse 14 it says, and this was the light. He became flesh and dwelt among us. But two verses after that, there's a beautiful phrase in there. It's the first time, because John, by the way, is also known as the Gospel of Light. He uses the analogy of light and darkness more than any other apostle. Some 66 times he uses the analogy of light and almost 40 times he uses the analogy of darkness between John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And yet in that, he gives an adjective that's so beautiful and so helpful for us in the church today. He says, and this was the light, the true light. Tophos to the light the true, and it's as though he's saying there's lots of lights in the world, but there is only one light that is the true light, and that is Jesus Christ. John, pulling this out again, or Paul pulling this out again, is talking about this true light, no veil, no concealment, we don't lose heart. Secondly, what we see here is because God gave him this ministry, he refuses to lose heart. You see that? Though the world sometimes seems to line up against him, he finds strength in God's mercy. We have received this ministry. Now, let me explain what the ministry is. In in the previous chapter, he talked about how Moses had to walk around with a veil. Because Moses had been in the very presence of the light of God. But he talks about how now we get to walk around with an unveiled face, shining the light of God's glory around the world. And so when he's talking about this great ministry in verse number one, it leads to verse number two. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's pointing out that false teachers had come into the Corinthian church and that they were tricky and deceitful. They used hidden things of shame, they walked in craftiness, they handled the word of God deceitfully. And he's saying, That's not how I am coming to you, I'm very different. The word handling here by the word by the way the word duluo it means literally not only to deceive but to falsify. It doesn't just mean to twist the truth, it makes, means to try to make up a new kind of truth out of whole cloth. And their methods were the same. They're, they're using the forces of evil, the shameful enticements of sin. By the way, that that phrase there, the hidden things of shame literally is talking about the kinds of things that we are facing in our society today. Things that should remain behind closed doors are now shouted from the housetops. The crafty juggling of the truth and crafty arguments. And he's saying, this is out there, but this is not how Christians handle things. Let's look at verse 3. But even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. If the Gospel is veiled or hidden to some, it certainly isn't God's fault. But what Paul is saying is he didn't want it to be his fault either. That he wanted to speak the whole counsel of God in every circumstance. And even as he writes these words, he's aware that there are some who simply can't take it in. And the question is why? Well, he explains it in verse 4. Read it with me. Whose minds the God of this age is blinded. Who do not believe lest the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the imago Dei, should shine upon Him. And here's the crux of this passage. Paul steps into the great reason why so many cannot see today. Why so many cannot hear the truth and instead seem to tear the world apart. And it's because the God of this age has blinded them. According to John 8.44, Satan is the father of lies. And see it here. Notice that he targets, it says it right here, second word in verse number 4, he targets the mind. His language as the father of lies is to use anything that would take your mind away From the truth of God's Word, he targets the mind. By the way, any old lie will do. There was an old preacher many, many years ago up in Minnesota who used to talk about how whenever truth is mixed with error, it is always truth that loses. Error had nothing to give up in the first place. Does that make sense? Satan doesn't care what error gets mixed in with the truth as long as he messes the truth up. In our age, it is something different than maybe it was a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago. But there's always something that Satan will use to try to target the mind of people around us. He may use the lie of the world that this earth popped out of nowhere of its own accord so that you don't have to believe in God. He may use the ideas of Freud that you can psychoanalyze yourself out of heart sickness. He may use what Paul described to Timothy as "oppositions of science, falsely so-called," meaning uh, so you know the, coming along with the idea that every generation uh, is one of those things where you you find a different answer for this and a different answer for that. By the way, how many of you have found out that science isn't necessarily science anymore? There, by the way, I'm off on a rant now. Y'all mind if I chase a rabbit here or there? So there were these signs that were all over Cheyenne uh, a couple years ago. And it said, love is love, water is life, science is science. And it had a whole bunch of different things. Black Lives Matter was one of them. Had all these different things. And people would stick them out everywhere. Every one of those statements kind of, well, they're not Not wrong but they're certainly not right. It's the question of what does it mean? And when you look at how people are are pointing this out, what kind of science are we talking about today? Because it changes so often. I'm done with my rant. Promise, Matt. Satan uses all sorts of things to try to blind us to truth. A very distortion of reality. I listened to this on a book on tape just yesterday. It blew my mind. In 1984, there was a paper that was written. It presented the case of a man who was thoroughly convinced that he was born with a phantom head. Uh, He grew so angry, so frustrated with his phantom head that one day he took out a revolver and tried to shoot his phantom head off. Obviously, he didn't die, but he so very nearly killed himself because, like the rest of us, he was only born with one head. What had happened is he had a distorted sense of reality. You with me? In the 1980s, <clears throat> there are many people trying to keep up with uh, the fitness craze that... Uh, I don't know if you you heard about this, but back then there were people, and I'm sure it still happens today, people who were either fit or sometimes extremely thin, who still perceived themselves to be exceedingly overweight. And so they would actually try to purge themselves and constantly do different things to where eventually a diagnosis of bulimia nervosa began to be handed out. Thinking that A condition exists in their life that is not real, and yet they have a distorted sense of reality. It's a lie that they see as true, but it is not true. It is distorted in its reality. Sadly today, there is something else. A very real condition that exists known as gender dysphoria. It's a very rare group, usually of younger people who are confused about their sexuality. In those real cases, very, very exceedingly rare, five out of six it figured out before they really reach their mid-teen years. The very word dysphoria means that there is an uncomfortable confusion. There's discomfort. And yet today, the reason why I bring this up is because all across Canada today, I am joining this morning with pastors who literally have picked up this topic to preach on today, which is also known as National Religious Freedom Day. Because recently, the Parliament of Canada has decided to tell the church That if a person who feels uncomfortable and they feel a dysphoria, they they are lost and confused in something, if they come to you for biblical help, you cannot help them. You must affirm them in their discomfort. You see, the God of this age has blinded us. In our day, it's often called the sexual revolution. Demanding radical conformity to its demands of radical autonomy and trying to blind the eyes of men. And it's not a question anymore of the sublimity of beauty, it's whether boys are boys and girls are girls. And the answers are found in God's Word. If the church doesn't speak, who speaks? The world does. And the God of this age blinds a society. And that's why men and women of God must get into His Word, must pour it into their lives, and must find their voice to speak God's Word in every aspect of their lives. Whether it's in the church or in the home. But let me just tell you this. I'm glad when you speak God's Word in the church and in the home. But where God's Word needs to be heard is in the city hall of Thane, Wyoming, in Afton. It needs to be heard in the capital in Cheyenne. It needs to be heard in a march in Washington, D.C. We have the answer. We hold God's Word, and it needs to be heard. Paul is reaching in and he's saying, the gods of this age have blinded many, lest the glorious light of the Gospel of Christ should shine upon them and they should be saved. But then the question comes, so what do we do about it? If the gods of this age are blinding, what do we do? Well, look at verse 5 with me. <clears throat> for we do not preach ourselves, but, Jesus, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who was shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Well, if the gods of this age have blinded many, what do we do? We preach the truth of Christ. We shine the light into the darkness. Now, here, let me just lay out four things. And I, I'm I may go to meddling here just a little bit. Because I I, I, I won't I don't want you to go home just thinking that. I preached a happy-go-lucky sermon. That wouldn't make me a very good Baptist. I want to kind of make you feel like you can do something about this. There are four responses that I can see in American church history. Four responses that we have seen since the mid-1880s. The first response is to bow to the cultural tide. As modernism grew in sections of the American church, the same forces that argued against the doctrines of the faith began to argue for a godless social order. Now, I'm going to go to meddling here. For instance, within the Methodist movement, a very liberal professor in the 1870's by the name of Professor Borden Parker Bone, who was actually praised by an atheist philosopher by the name of William James, William Jane said of uh, Professor Bone, he said, see how the ancient spirit of Methodism evaporates under the wonderfully able rationalistic booklets of a professor and philosopher like Professor Bone. Within 30 years, 38 years, Methodism adopted a social creed in 1908. It was championed by Harry Ward, who later enthused in 1920. It is doubtful if any period of human history unless it was that immediately preceding the birth of Jesus, has known such a universal expectancy of the dawn of a new day. Word was echoed in 1924 by uh, uh, Bishop Harris Franklin Rawl, who said, we're coming to see more clearly each day that the kingdom of God means not simply new individuals, but a new world, a new social order. What was he talking about? He was talking about as the light of the Gospel dimmed, as rationalistic philosophy began to invade the church, that the church was now on the new cusp of something big and grand, but I can tell you this today, that the vast majority of churches that was once known as the mainline denominations, the Seven Sisters, they have hemorrhaged to the point where they're less than 40% collectively of what they used to be. And it's because they bowed to the cultural tide. But here's the second thing, a different kind of response altogether. There were those that instead of bowing to the cultural tide, they hid from the cultural tide. I come from this background. Fundamentalism began to respond to the heresy of modernism And it began to run, of course, into strong headwinds with the, I don't know if you've heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial and the repeal of Prohibition and the Great Depression. The fundamentalists began to basically get more militant and they began to just fight. And it wasn't very long until they began to actually pull away from public policy altogether. But that also, there's been a third response. For the past 40 years, is New thinkers have started to address the retreat of Christians from, from the public arena. Many Christians have shown a tendency to look for a new cultural Messiah to lift them up and over the tide. They've shown the tendency whether, you know, I'm talking about some of my heroes here, whether it's Reagan, by the way. I used to play Reagan when I was a kid. Some people play Superman. I'd make my little brother be Gorbachev. It was fun. (laughs) Tear down these walls. Anyway, the people look for these cultural messiahs, whether it's Reagan or Gingrich or Bush or Trump. Or Christians have shown a proclivity to focus on personalities over principles. And that is exactly what has caused so much of the decline. You see, it isn't about personalities. It is about the truth of God's Word. It's exactly what we just read in this beautiful passage where we talk about the light of God's Word shining out into the darkness. Look at verse 6 for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Understand this. This is the proper response of the Christian church. It's number four, is not to bow to the cultural tide, is not to hide from the cultural tide. It is not to try to find a cultural Messiah to lift us up and over the cultural tide. It is to be a lighthouse above the tides calling people to the truth of God's Word. The lighthouse of truth. Understand this. Let me give you something practical. I wrote an article on this a couple of years ago. When we look at politics, a lot of times people see two things. They see party or partisanship or principles. The founders of this country were very focused on principles, and they rooted those principles in God's word. When you look at party, matter of fact, the first two presidents were so scared of party they refused to be part of one. Because they were afraid that if they became part of a party, that they actually might lose the principles. But what happens over time is we actually do better if we stand together. So party happens. But one thing that should never happen is to allow partisanship to overwhelm principles. When party overwhelms principles, truth goes by the wayside. And that's the reason why the church, shining light into the darkness of this world, reminding people of the principles we were built upon, is exactly what is needed in our culture today. To remind people that every life matters. On either side of the womb. That because they are created in the Imago Dei... By the way, I'm so proud of your work with the Azar house. Of the seven different uh, uh, pregnancy resource centers in this state, I am so proud of what Azar House is doing here in Star Valley. It's a great work. By the way, I have a ball cap from Azar House I wear quite a lot back home. But when we talk about what you're doing there, you're actually reaching out and being a light in the life of a young lady facing one of the biggest challenges she's probably ever faced to that point in her life and you're showing her light in the darkness. That's what Christians do. We don't allow party to overwhelm principle. Principle comes first. We still work together. Party is still necessary, but principles always come first. And it's important for us to be that lighthouse of truth. And that's what Paul is saying here, that this light, this hope, this treasure is housed. Look with me in verse number 7. It is housed. See it with me now? in earthen vessels. Who is that? That's you. That's me. We are the earthen vessels housing the truth of God's Word. You may be the only Bible someone ever sees. You may be the only representation of Jesus Christ someone ever runs across. The question is, what will they find when they see you? Will they find a person who is shining light into darkness? Or a person who is overwhelmed by it? Who is hiding from it? Who is looking for someone else to lift him over it? Or will they find a lighthouse calling people to the truth? We are vessels carrying the truth of God's Word to the world and what this fallen world needs is what we are supposed to be giving them. We're not to bow. We're not to hide. We're not to try to find someone to do our work for us. We are every one of us to carry the light of the truth in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our town halls, in Cheyenne, in Washington, everywhere we go. Pop psychology insists that you are who you are based upon your feelings rather than objective facts. And as our nation starts to buckle under the question of which truth to follow and whether there is truth at all, it is into this intersection... This junction of truth and culture that the church stands tall and says waterfalls can be sublime, truth is knowable, mankind cannot be abolished in a sea of made up feelings. We hold the truth and we cannot fail in our duty to stand for it. We have this ministry to speak the whole counsel of God. And To not lose heart, while the God of this age has blinded many, God, who commended light, commanded light, to shine out of darkness, and has shown into our hearts, places this very treasure, this glorious gospel, in you and me, as earthen vessels, to carry out into the world my call for you today and to the church at large is let's do our job. Let's do our job. There may be someone here today that has never really received the genuine light of God's Word in your heart. If you were to die today, you're not absolutely certain that you would go to heaven. I know many of you, and I know how great this church is and how steady the preaching and teaching of the Gospel is, but I wouldn't be doing what is right in my calling as a minister of the Gospel without saying this. If you do not know today whether when you pass away, your soul will go to heaven or hell, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You see, God loves you so much, so much, that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sin. And you know the story how He was nailed there, pierced for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and as by His stripes we are healed. This is the message of the gospel. To know Jesus Christ for who He is. As the Savior of the world. But not only for the savior of the, as the Savior of the world, but the Savior of you within the world. In the church today, there was a great preacher many, many years ago, W.A. Criswell. He passed away decades ago. But he used to point out that there is a strong possibility in the church that at least 60% of the people that came to church truly were not saved. They had a form of godliness, but there was no power thereof. And my question for you, and it's a good thing to ask, are you truly saved? The second question I want to ask is this. If you are saved, are you doing your job as a Christian? This is where it gets a little tougher. Because it is possible to have a great walk with Christ and still resist Him as He calls you to live out your faith in the field around us. The harvest is white, but the laborers are few. Why is that? Because the church doesn't always do its job. We grow at ease in Zion. We grow comfortable with what we know we hang out with people that look and feel and sound like us. I'm so appreciative, my friend Craig here, for years ministered with prison fellowship. I don't know how many of you have ever reached out to a person who has reached the very end of their tether and are locked behind bars. Just yesterday, I spoke with my father-in-law who ministers in a prison in Mariposa, California, jail, local jail there. And there was a man he had the privilege of leading to the Lord behind bars last night. And he got a call last night and he said, Kenny, would you reach out to my wife? She's kind of lost and doesn't know what to do. Would you reach out and just talk to her? And he said, sure, what's her number? And he called her. Last night, he had the privilege of leading her to the Lord. My father-in-law was never a guy that ever went to jail before. But what happened is God put a burden in His heart to start reaching out to people who had no one who really looked after them anymore. You know, my question is, what kind of ministry is it for you in Thane, Wyoming? For the principal of the school? You've got a big mission field. And Keith, I'm thankful for how you held up. At a czar house... As every broken lady comes in full of heartache and pain, what they need to find is a Christian who loves them and will put their arms around them. But that same thing needs to happen in public policy. That needs to happen across this country. It's time the church was the church. And here's what I want to leave you with. It's right here. Number one, If you don't know Christ today, if you don't know the light yet that's shining in darkness, it's time to come to the light. But then secondly, if you do know the light, it is time then to pick up the mantle of being that earthen vessel and taking that light to the world. That's what we're here to try to help with at Family Policy Alliance. That's why we're here, is to encourage you to be what God called you to be, in the first place. Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Father, I know that there are so many voices today pulling to the left or to the right, pulling in every which direction, trying to change the truth. And in every single way, it's the God of this age that brings blindness. lest the glorious light of the gospel of Christ should shine upon people. But Lord, opposed to that, I pray that you would call your church to be who she was always supposed to be, to be men and women of God shining light in the darkness, to take this great truth housed in earthen vessels and to stand for that truth, regardless of the personal consequence. Help us to be your people, God. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.
2: Would you stand as we sing our closing song together? Yay. my mind goes back to what you instructed us in Matthew chapter 5 when you said, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill which should not be hidden. And yet, Lord, I wonder how many of us here, we continue to over and over take the basket and place it over the light. Or we hide ourselves from the truth. We, We hide ourselves from the public forum. And Lord, as our dear brother has reminded us, you have called us to be light, to stand out as your hands and your feet, and to reflect you to a world that is lost and dying. Lord, we pray that you would use us, bring glory to yourself through our lives as we reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray.